You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. Diabolical. Vengeance. Betrayal. Bad hair. Leaning. Hi everyone, this is Kimberly. And this is Katie. And we have a weekly podcast called A Date with Dateline, a recap of Dateline episodes. We talk about important issues like grainy surveillance footage, cell phone towers, Andrea Canning's white jeans, and Mankey's hankies. We delve into the details of any victim who's ever loved life or lit up a room. So find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and iTunes to make A Date with Dateline. And remember, don't watch alone. A Date with Dateline is a podcast hosted by two professional amateur true crime TV experts with no formal training but evidence lockers filled with snark and uninformed opinions. Hi friends, this is Annie. And I'm Johanna, and this was the promo for Date with Dateline. It's a podcast by Katie Mitchell and Kimberly Arnold, and they talk about Dateline and do like episode recaps. They are very funny and snarky, and I, <laughs> I think we all love to watch Dateline, don't we? We really do all love to watch Dateline. Keith Morrison. Oh, Keith Morrison, we love you. (laughs) So, Johanna, happy anniversary. Can you believe we've been doing this for a year? I can not. (laughs) Man, we have come a long way already and this year really flew by. I think we found our groove and we couldn't be more thankful for you out there listening. Let's hope for another amazing year, I'd say. I hope so. Absolutely. I'm just, I'm so impressed with how good you've gotten at making us sound like we're in the same room, even though we're on different continents. It's really well done. I'm very proud of you for figuring this all out. Thank you. Uh, I have to admit, I have no idea what I'm doing most of the time. (laughs) No, that's me. I feel like you always know what you're doing. I do not. (laughs) (laughs) We asked you in the Facebook group what you wanted to hear as our one year anniversary episode, and you voted... Surprisingly, I have to say, on the Enfield Poltergeist. I was also surprised that this is the one that won. But it was great because I knew nothing about this case before. I knew a bit, but I definitely know more now. Yeah, I think Amityville came out over here in the in the States and just kind of eclipsed all the other paranormal happenings of the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah I can understand why. Do we have any warnings? I'm trying to think. I think it's like pretty standard haunting stuff. So we're going to talk a bit about girls getting periods. But honestly, if that bothers you or grosses you out, you're probably not mature enough to be listening to the show in the first place. So turn it off before I call your mother. (laughs) It's my mean aunt tone. It's pretty good, right? All right. So before we get into the spooky fuckery that's pretty much guaranteed with a poltergeist story, let's just talk very quickly about the different types of hauntings. Yeah? Let's. All right. So, residual and intelligent hauntings are ghost or spirit energy of a human. So, in a residual haunt, there's no intelligent ghost there. It's like a little clip of a person's life happening over and over again after their death. If you see a residual apparition, it won't see you back. It won't interact. It'll just walk right past you or through you, if you're lucky. A common example on Cape Cod would be to see a woman on a widow's walk waiting to see if her husband's ship is returned to port. You know, she's always in white and she appears every year on the third Tuesday after Pentecost when the moon is full. Yeah. 
that's the ones I could get to terms with. I imagine it <laughs> like an old projection, you know, played over and over and over again. Exactly. And I do like movies, so I think that would be fine with me. Now, intelligent hauntings are the aware ghosts or spirit energy of people, and this type of haunting can interact with the environment, and I don't like that. I think you probably have a little bit of both of these two kinds in your house, Annie, you know, the kicking mm -hmm. door latches and whatnot yeah. your ghost does. I think so. Yeah, I've definitely got both kinds of activity here. You might also have an intelligent haunting lead to spirit possession or channeling, but this would be the spirit of somebody who was once a living human, like in the movie Ghost, right? Yeah. Then my favorite scene with Whoopi Goldberg, and she's like, damn, baby, what you do to your hair? I've said <laughs> that to so many people. <laughs> But yeah. I think I made it clear a couple of times in this podcast that I'm a skeptic. Also due to the fact that I'm too scared of the thought that <laughs> ghosts exist and yeah. watch me sleeping or taking a shower. So hauntings can stay the fuck away from me. And of course, I have to say that these are all theories. Oh no, these come from the big book of ghost facts. <laughs> yes, definitely these are theory. And I, I know how you feel because that's how I feel about aliens. I get it. But yeah, hopefully we're just touching on some of the more known aspects of the paranormal. I don't even know how to like qualify these things. Well, then you have the demonic hauntings and demonic possessions. So this would be an entity that was never a human before. Right. So that's your standard exorcist demon shenanigans. Yeah, go and listen to our episode uh, 33 about Anneliese Michel for more of that, if you're interested. Oh, that case makes me so angry. Uh, finally, you have poltergeist activity. This is specifically ghosts or energy that manipulate the physical world and they wreak havoc. They bang on things, they rearrange furniture, they never clean, <laughs> they only make messes. It's like living with me. <laughs> <laughs> like the one in the we talked about it in our Halloween episode the one that broke your wine bottle yeah yeah they're sort of the embodiment of spooky fuckery they really are they're the worst and the word poltergeist is German right yes it is I always find it funny when German words make it to other languages you know like Gesundheit Schadenfreude Blitzkrieg Bratwurst and poltergeist all good things yeah <laughs> <laughs> Blitzkrieg mm. well Blitzkrieg Bob. It's a good song. <laughs> Here's what Wikipedia has to say for the word poltergeist. Quote, the word poltergeist comes from the German language words poltern, which is to make sound or to rumble, and geist, so that's ghost or spirit. And the term itself translates as noisy ghost, rumble ghost, or a loud spirit. And I have to agree that poltergeist sounds so much more spooky than noisy ghost. <laughs> it really does. Also, hauntings generally haunt a place and can haunt a place for eternity. But poltergeist activity generally follows people from place to place and they're usually short-lived. So that's Spooky Fuckery 101 done here. <laughs> okay, our story today took place in Enfield. That's a working-class neighborhood of North London and it took place in 1977. The Hodgson family had lived in their semi-detached council house on Green Street for 12 years. And for our listeners outside of the UK, council housing is uh, low-income housing and in this case it was a row of semi-detached houses built after the First World War. They couldn't have soldiers coming back from fighting and so they started the Homes for Heroes campaign, clearing out a lot of the old Victorian slums and building safe, reasonably spacious, well-built homes to mostly working-class people. Semi-detached means they share a wall with another house, which in this case the homes are mirror images of each other. We'll of course post a photo in our Facebook group 
as usual. The best source for this part of the information is the book This House is Haunted by Guy Playfair. It's incredibly detailed and there's no way we can cover every single happening, but read that if you want no, to. No, we'd lose them at like hour four. <laughs> the podcast if we went it's very detailed of course we're gonna link everything in our sources annie do you want to tell the story i'm gonna yeah i'm gonna do yeah. my best <laughs> all right so peggy hodgson had been divorced in 1974 and like a lot of single moms she was struggling the past three years to make ends meet and things had not been easy she lived on green street in north london with her four children margaret was 13 janet 11 John, aged 10, was away at school, but came home some weekends and on the holidays. And Billy was aged six or seven, and he had a severe speech defect. The children's father would come to the house to make his child support payments, and sometimes he would bring his new girlfriend with him to do this. That must have been hard. Yeah, you get the impression that this is, like, the only time they see their dad, which I think would not help. But they like where they live on Green Street. They're good friends with the couple who share a wall with them, the Nottinghams. Vic is a roofer, and his wife is also named Peggy. Um, they call her Peggy next door a lot to differentiate between Peggy Hodgson and Peggy Nottingham. But uh, also Peggy Hodgson's brother, John, who worked at a local hospital, he lived just down the street with his wife and their two kids. So she had a lot of support around her. On Thursday, August 30th, the children are in bed when Peggy hears a noise coming from upstairs. So she goes upstairs to tell her kids to go to sleep and stop messing around. Janet claimed that her brother John's bed was shaking and, quote, going all funny. Peggy dismisses this as the kids being assholes at bedtime, as most kids are. Uh, she tells them to knock it off and go back to bed. But the next night, Peggy hears another noise. And she said it sounded like feet shuffling across the carpet. So she goes upstairs, and this time, she actually witnesses a heavy oak chest of drawers move about a foot and a half, or 45.72 centimeters, away from the wall. So she's startled, and she pushes it back into place. And then it moved out again on its own, toward the door. And she said it looked as though it were trying to trap them all in the room. So Peggy pushes on the dresser again, but this time it will not budge. It felt as though there were an unseen force pushing back at her against the dresser. And then there were knocking sounds all around the room that sounded like they came from every wall in the house. Now terrified, Peggy gets the kids downstairs. She's trying to figure out what to do and is debating bringing everyone over to her brother's place. But it's late, and they don't have a telephone, so she can't really call ahead and warn them that they're all going to show up on their doorstep. They see the Nottinghams have a light on, and they go next door in their bathrobes to Vic and Peggy's. Vic and their 20-year-old son, Gary, return to the house with her. So Vic thinks maybe there's an issue with a sagging floor or some other structural issue, and he not only can't find any reasonable explanation for it, the knocking sound that seems to come from the ceiling is freaking him the fuck out. So now Vic and Peggy are at a loss. And finally, after midnight on August 31st, not knowing what else to do, Peggy Nottingham phones the police. The police arrive and look around, but nothing is amiss. It's just as they're leaving that But suddenly, a chair wobbled a bit, and Billy pointed at it. WPC Carolyn Heaps, one of the Metropolitan Police who was there that night, would write an official statement about what she saw, and she was interviewed several times. This is a direct quote from an interview with her around the time of the event about what she witnessed with the chair. Quote, it came off the floor nearly half an inch. I saw it slide off to the right about four feet before it came to rest. I checked to see if it could have slid along the floor by itself, I even placed a marble on the floor to see whether it would roll in the same direction as the chair. It did not. 
I checked for wires under the cushion and chairs and I could not see any. I couldn't find any explanation at all. End quote. So the police experience something and they feel badly that the family is so obviously upset. But ultimately, they have to leave because it isn't a police matter. So they go, but they do let the family know that they'll check back in on them. But over the next few days, as August turned into September of 1977, the activity begins to increase. Now, in addition to the knocking sounds heard throughout the house, they also witnessed marbles and Lego bricks flying through the room. Sometimes, these items were found to be burning hot to the touch, especially the marbles, I think. Also, sometimes they fell straight down, as if they'd fallen through the ceiling. A local vicar and a medium had come to the house, and they weren't able to help. Desperate, terrified, and tired of her entire family spending sleepless nights in the living room, Peggy is at her wit's end, and on September 4th, Vic calls the Daily Mirror, hoping someone will have a solution. And he thought at first they were dismissive, so he kept calling. So, reporter Douglas Bentz and photographer Graham Morris are assigned the story, and they head to the house. The family are next door at the Nottinghams, so they can investigate the house for themselves, but there was no activity at all. As they left, Vic comes running outside to the car and tells them the activity is happening. So the men rush back in, and the family are back in their house in the room, and the reporters are just stunned to see Lego block flying through the room. Graham was apparently hit with one, hard enough to leave a bruise near his eye. They go back to the paper, and they're telling colleagues what they saw, and they really pique the curiosity of senior reporter George Fallows and photographer David Thorpe, who visited the house themselves in order to see the activity. Fallows believed based on what he's heard and seen regarding moving furniture and flying Legos that the family has a poltergeist on their hands. He explains to them this type of activity seemed to happen often around girls going through puberty. He explains he thinks it's best if they call the Society for Cyclical Research the SPR. According to Playfair's book, when Peggy hears this, she fainted. She had misunderstood and thought psychiatrists were getting involved. The last time a psychiatrist had come into her life, her son was taken from her and sent to a special boarding school for problem children, without ever having told Peggy exactly what or why the specific problem was. But the Society for Cyclical Research, or the SPR, is not psychiatrists. They're a well-respected organization founded in the 1880s, made up of believers, as well as some skeptics, who investigate potential paranormal cases and charge no fee for doing so. The SPR assigned Maurice Gross to the case. Maurice was a World War II veteran, a heavy artillery gunner, who was evacuated from Dunkirk. He was a commercial artist and a successful inventor who had become interested in the paranormal when he and his wife lost their 22-year-old daughter Janet in an accident in August of 1976. They believed she had communicated with them from the other side, and this is what led Maurice to join with the organization. He is an intelligent and thoughtful man with kind eyes and a pretty fabulous mustache. The official reports from the SPR are another well-used source in this story. So, Maurice heads to Green Street, and he meets the family and suggests to the very helpless-feeling Peggy that she should keep a diary of what's been happening in the house. And I like this. I feel like he's giving her something that she can do about it, right? Because she's feeling so helpless. He immediately puts the family at ease, and it's not long before he's convinced that they are dealing with genuine paranormal activity. Marbles flying through the air and stopping dead when they land, banging sounds, doors and drawers opening on their own, and furniture being moved or knocked over. So Maurice attends a meeting of the SPR, and he explains what's happening at the house on Green Street, and he says he could use a hand with this case. 
Guy Leon Playfair, a more seasoned member of the group who had already written several books on cases he'd investigated, he offers to help, thinking it'll be a week of work, tops. Guy does not want to get involved in a big case, he's just finished writing an exhausting book and gotten home from Brazil, and he is very much looking forward to vacation. He was very wrong about that timeline, though, and would practically be living on Green Street for over a year. On September 10th, the story was on the front page of the Mirror, and that led to reporters contacting the stressed-out family for more information. In the meantime, there was still a lot of activity reported in the home. They had even had Legos appear at John's house while staying down the street with his family. It seemed like the activity was following them. There were instances of the girls being thrown out of their beds, of Janet levitating, which, to this day, she says was terrifying, as she never knew where or how she'd land. Janet had a very difficult time going going back to school. She was constantly falling asleep in class as a result of being kept awake all night by the activity. She was bullied. She said they called her ghost girl and put crane flies down her back, which sounds awful. Psychic mediums were brought in, a husband and wife couple that Guy thought might be able to give them more information on what the entity knocking on the walls wanted. He hadn't gotten very far with his yes-no questions. In his book, he calls them George and Annie Shaw, but I suspect that's a pseudonym for the couple. In any case, Annie apparently went into a trance, and then she suddenly screamed, go away, and started to laugh maniacally. Her husband tried to question her, and she spat at him, moaning, gozer, gozer, help me, Elvie, come here. So, George demands the spirit depart and let the family be at peace. Once out of the trance, Annie said that Gozer was a nasty fellow having to do with black magic, and that Elvie was an elemental energy, and that both entities had been feeding off the energy of the two girls in the house. They did a psychic cleansing on the girls, and then left. And things did die down for a little while, so to speak, before returning with a vengeance. The family were so overwrought that the local council sent them on a vacation the last week of October to Clacton-on-Sea. There was no activity when they were on holiday, which supported the idea that perhaps stress does play a role in how poultry your geist is. When they returned home, the activity picked up again. Mrs. Hodgson would report that she felt funny headaches sometimes right before an event would happen. Growling noises were occasionally heard, and Janet had several instances where she would act as though she were in a trance, and she would try to hurt herself, banging her head on things until she was restrained long enough to come out of it. No one ever says she's possessed, but it seems like she's possessed, or what one thinks of when they think of a possession. During one of those episodes, on November 26, she was flailing around so much her uncle and Maurice Gross could not control her, and so they had to call a doctor, who came to the house and gave Janet an injection of 10 milligrams of diazepam, also known as Valium. Sweet, sweet, quieting drugs. They left Janet asleep in the bed, but not long after, heard a crash. They went running upstairs to check on her, only to find her on top of a chest of drawers, sound asleep, slumped over a radio. A camera set to take bursts of photos was set up remotely in the girl's bedroom and captured photos of Janet apparently levitating in the air, torn from her bed. We also have a photograph of her sleeping on the radio. In December of 1977, about three months after the start of the Hodgson's family's supernatural problems began, they were faced with a new horror. First, a whistling sound. But the children couldn't whistle like that. Then, what sounded like a dog barking. It's loud and disturbing, and it goes on for a while. And then Maurice has a sort of, if you can bark, you can talk moment, and talk it did. It swore a lot. It claimed to be the ghost of Joe Wilkins, a man who had lived in the house. Maurice brings in his son, Richard Gross, who is a solicitor, or a lawyer, as we would say in the States, to question Janet, because he's more accustomed to interviewing people. 
quote, I went blind and I had a hemorrhage and I fell asleep and I died on a chair in the corner downstairs, end quote. We have a clip of this voice we'll play for you. Turns out months later, the son of the family that had lived there before got in touch. They were the Wilkins family, and Bill Wilkins did die of a hemorrhage, which I'm assuming is an aneurysm, in the chair in the corner, just as Janet said. There were other entities who spoke through the girls, like Tom and Dick and Stuart. A lot of studies were done to test this voice using a laryngeograph. These tests indicated that the voice was made with Janet's false vocal folds and was not how people usually speak. They said that using a voice like this would cause a sore throat at best, but permanent injury at worst. Janet, however, would talk to investigators in this voice for hours on end, and later, upon returning to her normal voice, would suffer no sore throat effect at all. To eliminate the possibility that Janet herself was faking the voice, Gross taped up Janet's mouth. He also says that he had her take a sip of water, then taped her mouth, and you could still hear the voice, it was just a bit quieter. Then he'd have her spit the water back out to prove she wasn't talking. Roz Morris covered this story at the time for BBC Radio, and she has several recordings and a radio special that we will link to. It was also in December of 1977 that Janet got her first period, December 14th in fact, which is the same day that Hazel Short, a lollipop lady, or what we would call a crossing guard here in the States, for the school across the street, witnessed Janet levitating horizontally past her bedroom window. Here is a quote from Hazel. Quote, 
All of a sudden, I heard a bang and saw a book hit the front bedroom window, and that was followed by a pillow, and then the book, and then the pillow again. All of a sudden, I saw Janet going up and down in front of the window. I thought she was jumping up and down on the bed, but when I looked, she was horizontal going up and down, up and down, with her arms and legs going everywhere, I suppose about a half dozen times. It was frightening. I didn't think it would be, because to be truthful, I was a bit skeptical. Well, after that I wasn't. End quote. Not only did Janet say she had levitated, but also that she had passed through the wall into the Nottingham's house and back again. Early in January 1978, Margaret started to speak in similar harsh voices, but without the same intense creepiness, and never for as long. Janet and Margaret say that they don't make the voice. To them, it sounds like it's coming from behind them, and they can feel it on the back of their necks. Maurice says there's no way anyone could do this voice and not get hoarse or a sore throat. He offered a reward to anyone who could. He got no takers. According to the report by Melvin Willen of the SPR, quote, The incidents at Enfield are among the most closely recorded in any poltergeist-type case. Gross Playfer, Mrs. Hodgson and other witnesses kept records of varying levels of detail. Tape recordings mainly by Playfair and Gross eventually totaled over 180 hours, end quote. And just a fraction of the activity reported was marbles and pieces of Lego seen traveling through the air at great speed, seemingly emanating from walls or windows. Metal spoons bent and the lid of a metal teapot was deformed. Cardboard boxes and cushions were thrown by an unknown force. A slipper was thrown across a room by an unknown source, a framed certificate was pulled off the wall, that was when Gross alone was in the room, a settee was levitated and overturned in front of several witnesses, 11-year-old Janet was levitated and deposited in different places at different times, kitchen unit doors slid open of their own accord, footsteps were heard when nobody else was present, 12-year-old Margaret was held fast by an unknown force, knocks, bangs, crashes were heard not caused by plumbing, vibration or other external sources, small fires started and extinguished themselves without causing damage, normally reliable electrical equipment like tape recorders, cameras and so on failed to work, apparitions were seen, partial apparitions and total, the iron frame of a built-in fireplace was wrenched from the wall. So there's a lot going on and it's a tremendous strain on the family who now tend to stay in the same room together, which I can totally understand because I would do the same. Oh yeah. Another thing that reportedly happened on more than one occasion was the curtains would move on their own and strangle Janet. Yeah, she said that was the scariest thing for her, I think. So on Tuesday, the 25th of July, 1978, Guy was able to arrange for Janet to be admitted to the Maudsley, which is a well-respected institute of neuropsychology in South London. There, she was examined and cared for by Dr. Fenwick and tested for about six weeks to be sure she wasn't suffering from mental health problems, or that a physical diagnosis like epilepsy or Tourette's might be responsible for some of her behavior. She was deemed healthy, mentally and physically, and sent home. But within hours of returning home, she saw the figure of what she described as a little boy in the kitchen. She wasn't the only family member to see an apparition in the house. The children's uncle John, Peggy's brother, had returned to the house to get an alarm clock while they were away on vacation. He went to the house, got the clock, and when he came downstairs, he saw a man sitting at the living room table wearing a white and blue striped shirt with thinning gray hair and his back was to John. Before John could ask the man why he was in his sister's house, the man vanished. 
And I know a lot of you have seen The Conjuring 2 and are wondering when the Warrens come into the story. And they don't. Not really, at least. Lots of different investigators, mediums, psychic healers, reporters and whatnot came to visit the house. It seems as far as we can tell that the Warrens showed up uninvited for a day or so during the 18th month when the bulk of the activity was happening and then again a year after the bulk of the activity had finished. Yeah, exactly. In October of 1978, a Dutch medium came to the house, cleansed it, a priest blessed it, and things seemed to calm down quite a bit from that point on. Sadly, Johnny died of cancer in 1981 when he was only 14. I believe Janet left home early when she was around 16, married young. I think she lives in the same seaside town her family once had that one vacation. She also hasn't had an easy life, though. Her son died in his sleep when he was 18. Peggy stayed in the house until her death in 2004. Maurice died in 2006. He was aged 87. Guy died in 2018, aged 83. And the other three Hodgson children, I believe, are still alive and well. All right. Let's discuss. Let's. <laughs> okay. Uh, so first, if they faked it, what did they have to gain by doing so? Okay, the family were sent on one vacation, which is honestly the only benefit they received from the whole ordeal. I suspect, it's just a suspicion, that they got some money from the Warrens for press on Conjuring 2. I think so too. Yeah, but clearly that wouldn't have been their motivation from the start. That would have been an impressive psychic long game if it had been. Uh, we'll get a little bit more into the Warrens in a bit, but another theory is that because the house they were living in was provided by the council, that they would have to convince authorities that they needed to be moved and that this whole thing was just a ploy to get a nicer or better or different house uh, out of the government. But I don't buy this explanation at all. No, me either. This was the first question that Maurice asked when went to see Peggy. When he met her. Yeah. Yeah. He asked her if Peggy wants to move. And even though the house was a bit run down and, and shabbily furnished, she had lived there for 12 years. All the kids but Margaret had lived there their whole lives and Margaret wouldn't remember living anywhere else. The Nottinghams were like family to them and her brother was just up the road. I just don't think she actually wanted to move. I think mm. she was she was fine where she was. Yeah, I agree. I think Peggy had a really hard time from the divorce and then going into all of this uh, poltergeist activity. Uh, I think it was a really hard time for her. Her, and uh, I think she really relied on that support of her family, including the Nottinghams. Okay, but what else would be in it for them to make them fake things? Um, I can think of a dead figure in Maurice being in the house so often. Yes, definitely. Definitely. And of course, male attention for all of them after their dad abandoned the family and just, you know, he shows up from time to time to pay his maintenance money. And he has the gal to bring his new girlfriend around when the family are clearly hurt and upset by this. So yeah. Yeah, you don't get the sense that their dad was a great guy. But you know who was? Maurice Gross. I I really like him. Liked him. He was uh, just an interesting man. So he was with the Royal Artillery Super Heavy Guns during the Second World War. He was evacuated from Dunkirk, which there's an interview I saw with him. And he said, quote, it was really rough going. Like, yeah, I bet it fucking was. <laughs> yeah. And he also said, quote, I was a lucky one. I got off on a destroyer, you know, so he has seen some shit. And uh, I think he's a pretty level-headed man. My favorite story, 
is that he met his wife, Betty, at a tea dance at the Marble Arch during the war, I believe in 1944. So he met her on a Sunday. He proposed on Thursday, and they were married two weeks later. And it was funny that one of the specials I'll link to, there's like lots of pictures of him and his wife in the garden and his daughter with their tortoises. And he's like, you know, that was 51 years ago. And they were married longer than that. But yeah, I think losing his daughter at such an early age and in such a traumatic way, I think for him, everything that happened in the house, like all the different people who Janet channeled, for lack of a better word, I think it just gave him hope that he could still connect with his Janet. And this is something that I, I just, I really identify with. But I do think that his grief and his wanting to believe combined with his being, you know, new to investigating things like this would make him more, um, more vulnerable to be tricked. Absolutely. I'm not saying I don't think he's smart, quite mm -hmm. the opposite. He seemed very intelligent, but I think he wanted to believe, if you know what I mean. I do. I agree completely. I have to, because that's what happened to me when my first husband died. I went from feeling the way you do about ghosts, where I was scared of them. I had experienced things, but I found it very frightening. I just, I don't know. But once Adam died, it was like, you really are looking for anything that's proof that you still have a connection to them. And I do it all. I still do it all the time. All song will come on the radio and I'll say, oh, that's April sending me a sign or that's my aunt. I think a lot of us do that. So I, I get that. And to your point, I do agree completely that Maurice needed a distraction to help him cope with his grief. And this provided him with that. Guy Playfair, he made sort of a career as a ghost hunter, writing many books on the subject, including, of course, This house is haunted. So his reason would be the book we used as one of our primary sources on this case. Yeah. I will say, though, Guy Playfair, he'd been involved in parapsychology his whole life. He was a big devoted fan of Yuri Geller and believed in his abilities. And I don't know. I, I think... I think he genuinely believed in all the events and used the book writing to support his research. I don't know if I'm being naive about that. He's definitely slicker, I think, anyway, than Maurice. I don't think he was a big faker totally in it for the money. I think he was a believer who was in it for the money, if that makes sense. <laughs> I think most people in the 70s wanted to believe Uri Geller. I think we all kept yelling, Echad Stein Shalosh, while rubbing our spoons, <laughs> hoping they would bend. <laughs> I know, it's true. I think it was just, I don't know, maybe it was just a perfect storm of a situation where everyone was getting their very niche specific needs met in the most bizarre way. I don't know. Mm, I think some yeah. of it was real and other bits were fake, but I don't think that anyone was in it for the money except the Warrens, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Not about the Warrens. I feel like we don't even have to really discuss them here as they really played not that big of a part in this case. I'm sure we will get into the Warrens at one point in another episode, probably when we will be covering the Amityville. Yeah. I have to say one thing, though, and you know it, I'm kind of obsessed with them. <laughs> First of all, I love Lorraine's style, like oh, yeah. her hairdo and her yeah. clothes. It's everything for me. It's all the Edwardian crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I and love it. I love how they had their noses in all the famous haunting and possession cases. They just had to butt in everywhere. Yeah, I think they had to, though, right? Like, literally, for legal reasons, in order to make money. Because that's the thing, I guess. I think a lot of people maybe tuned in to this episode because they've seen The Conjuring too, And so they want to know all about the history of the Warrens with this case. And there just isn't any, you know? And there's some videos of the sisters later in life when The Conjuring 2 comes out. And they say things like, you know, the Warrens were the only people we felt really wanted to help us. Which, I don't know, it kind of pissed me off on Maurice's behalf. <laughs> 
I, I just think a lot of people, especially Maurice, really gave up a lot of time and energy genuinely trying to help. So... It's yeah. weird. It's, it, it's a very strange feeling, though. Like, I don't know any of these people. I've got nothing interested in this, but I'm like, don't you talk about Maurice that way. I love him. All right. So let's take a look at some of the things we can just totally debunk. Please. Let's start with the fact that girls were called and admitted to faking things. Yeah. Janet told ITV News in 1980 when they asked if she faked anything, quote, oh yeah, once or twice, just to see if Mr. Gross and Mr. Playfair would catch us. They always did, end quote. And they were called bending spoons and trying to mess with the recording equipment. There's also a video of them you'll see if you watch some of the YouTube footage of interviews with the girls where they are asked about the haunting and Janet says something like, it's not haunted, and Margaret says, shut up. <laughs> the shut up, which, yeah. Yeah, which to me really makes it seem like the voices were faked. Yeah. A ventriloquist brought in thought she was faking it and people say that she couldn't have made that voice and kept it up. But uh, Annie, I think you told a story about kids oh, that you it, knew yeah, what was it. speak down here. Like oh, this. right, yeah. yeah right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, all of a sudden. <laughs> and they would do it. It was hours and hours. I babysat for a kid that could belt. He would only burp speak. And it sounded even more disturbing than that growly voice I just did. And I had scarlet fever as a child once because I was so in just insanely prone to strep throat, but hated the taste of the liquid medicine. So I just pretended my throat didn't hurt. And I'd have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for the damn scarlet fever. So yeah, nothing's going to convince me that the voice could not have been done by Janet intentionally just no problem uh, the voices also swore a lot and talked about periods a lot which <laughs> i don't know really doesn't seem like an elderly ghost preferred topic uh, oh. unless it's kind of a pervy ghost yeah oh what what's that you don't think old men like to talk about women's menarche menarche <laughs> Menar that's a term they use a lot in a lot of the uh, documentaries and it always makes me laugh the men menarche menarche I, I, that's not a term we use here we might say menses but menarche menarche Eh. My grandmother always used to call it unwell. Unwell? Yeah. That's fitting. Yeah, I think we can make a good case that the voices could be faked. I watched some of the interviews more than once, and unless I missed something in the recordings where you can hear the growly voice talking, you can hear Maurice and others talking at the same time, but I don't think I ever heard Janet and the voice speak at the same time. Mm. If I miss something, please let me know. No, I noticed that too. Also, I don't want to be unkind because I was a child uh, whom other children were very mean about my appearance too, but she had a somewhat spectacular overbite as a kid. And so to be honest, you just can't really see her lips very well when she's talking. It's hard to explain, but if you look at the YouTube videos, you'll see what I mean. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, uh, You'll also hear it mentioned that Janet and Margaret did confess to having played with a Ouija board, but it was apparently years before the activity started, so I don't think that's to blame. I mean, I never think... Yeah, I don't think that's to blame. No, you would never think it's to blame, but... Cause, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I but, didn't want to say it, but... No, yeah. no, I know. It's okay. <laughs> but it's like, that's the whole premise. Is it... Have you seen The Conjuring 2? I think... I, I definitely saw the first one. I think I saw the second one too. I think it was... The first one was pretty good, I think... I don't remember a lot about the second one, though. But yeah, no, I agree with you. Especially because it's never like, they found a Ouija board and played with it in the abandoned barn five years <laughs> later. You know, it just, it doesn't, that's not, how, <laughs> that's not how it works. Here's a fun fact that I love. So the psychic who mentioned Gozer, yeah, 
maybe you heard that name before. And you're right, Dan Aykroyd, he's a believer. He's one of I mean, us. believer. <laughs> and Gozer in Ghostbusters is from the medium channeling session done at the house. So he put it in there because he knew about the case. Gozer the Gozerian. I love it. It's such a good movie. The other thing is that during these, uh, this like two year period when these events were happening, they had two fish die, which Janet said, I believe, were killed by psychic energy. Listen, I'm not sure if an, if an official lifespan study of a goldfish in the care of children has been done for obvious reasons. I don't think we can chalk up losing two goldfish in two <laughs> years as supernatural. It's a controversial opinion, but I don't think... No, I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. Um, they also had a little bird that also passed away, but again, uh, nothing we've seen indicated it was murders by a ghost. Yeah. But this detail was used in the film Poltergeist, if you remember. Mm -hmm. So what do you think about the flying Legos and marbles? As if Legos lying on the floor aren't already dangerous enough. <laughs> but now we have this damn things flying too, which um, it reminds me that my husband swears he never stepped on a Lego in his life. It's just, he says it's one of these things he doesn't do according to him. <laughs> I don't know, are you even living your life to the fullest if you've never experienced the sudden sharp pain of a Lego? It is painful. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> it really is. The flying Legos. Yeah, an explanation for the marble seeming to appear from nowhere could just be inattentional blindness, which is the failure to notice a fully visible but unexpected object because attention was engaged on another task, event or object. Yeah, this happens to me with embarrassing frequency. Like, I'll suddenly notice a house on my street that I've driven past for a decade and just never noticed it. Or I'll say to Paul, oh, when did they put up a Burger King there? And he'll be like, it's been there since we've lived here. Yeah. Like, it's, you know, big things. It's a little bit alarming how often this happens. But I don't know. I don't know. So I think that, yes, the inattentional blindness could definitely account for some of it, but I'm not totally sure I believe that every instance of the Marvels and the Lego stuff was trickery. I think it's possible that some of that may have been real. Please don't tell me you think she levitated. No, 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 no. Not not any of the photos we've seen anyway. So we have photos that we'll post. There's a Channel 4 documentary on YouTube that shows the full series. We'll post all of this in the Facebook group. Janet really seems to be clearly jumping off the bed. She's totally jumping. Right. Yeah. It doesn't explain the floating past windows, though. Although I don't believe she floated through the wall at all. The floating past the window... So when I imagine it in my mind, there's no way it's not funny to have her be going like up and down, arms flailing. I'm sure in The Conjuring 2, they made it really spooky. The only thing I can think is that she was, because the bed was in front of the window. So almost like you would do on a trampoline, like if you, if you had dropped back and then bounced back up. Do you know what I mean? That's still not quite the right movement for a hovering with your back parallel to the ground. I have to admit, in my head, it does look a bit comical, too. It does, right? Yeah. Mm. I mean, if it actually happened, then yes, obviously, terrifying, but funny to an observer. <laughs> Much like when you walk into a... Listen, if you walk into a screen door and your whole family doesn't laugh at you, are they even your family? <laughs> All right. So I'm curious about the ending up on top of the dresser, though. After being given an injection of 10 milligrams of Valium, she was an athletic kid, but that's the dose that I take for certain types of muscle spasms, and I am a way bigger human than she is. So unless it happened before the meds kicked in, which... 
Thallium's pretty quick acting, even orally, so injected, I bet it would be fast. And I'm just, I don't know how she managed it. Uh, when I look at the photo, I see her arm. <sighs> it looks like she's helping to balance herself and support her weight. Mm. And they do talk a lot about how athletic Janet was, calling her a school sports champion. We don't have any real specifics in what what field she was so athletic. I'm going to say that move, if she was faking it, could be done if you're athletic. Yeah, I mean, I agree it's possible. It's just, in the photo, it looks like, you're right, she looks like she's holding herself up. I just don't, I suppose if Margaret was there to help her, that would make more sense if they were in on it together. What about the ghosts in the house? I'm conflicted because <sighs> I think that there were apparitions seen in the house, but then I think you and I agree that there's an explanation for some of it. Oh, absolutely. As for knowing about Mr. Wilkins dying in the chair in the parlor, I bet you anything that plenty of people had lived on that street a long, long time and would have mentioned about Bill Wilkins. Oh, he died right in the parlor in his chair and the kids overheard it. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. I actually lived somewhere once and I noticed one of my neighbor's attic windows was open and it was the middle of winter and absolutely freezing out. And so the first week I'm there, it's We just moved in and I'm talking to another set of neighbors and I said, oh, do you know who lives over there? I noticed their attic window is open and I wanted to make sure that they knew because they're probably losing all this heat right out their attic in the middle of January. And they told me that the couple had lived in that house and that the husband was a World War II vet uh, with pretty severe untreated PTSD and that when his wife died in the 90s, he hung himself in the attic and he wasn't found for a while. So the house went to his brother and sister who lived there when I was living there. And that's why the window, attic window is still open because they opened it to air it out. And I'm sure they'll never go back up there. So once I heard the story, I didn't mention anything to them about their attic window. But my point in telling that very sad story is that was probably day three of living somewhere. And I knew the entire history of the house next door. No surprise, they knew who had lived in their house and how they had died and when. I just think that's super common. Yeah, absolutely. The SPR had other investigators look into the case and they mostly didn't believe it. How about you? Do you believe any of it? Don't get mad at me. Of course I won't. I honestly think I don't. Um, It's weird. I also don't think that they were intentionally faking it, at least not in a mean-spirited way. I think the human mind can do incredible and unbelievable things. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do know what you mean. I have to say, I started out thinking... Initially, I was like, oh, this is going to be great. This is a super documented case. That's pretty much all I knew about it. So I was like, this is so exciting. Then I read it and I was like, this is all fake. I don't know how anybody thought that any of this was real. And then I looked more into it. And now I'm kind of 50-50 in terms of believing that some of it was faked. But I believe some of it some of it was real. Janet today seems fragile. I think she believes it. Or there's also the very real possibility that over the years, they've made themselves believe it. Do you know what I mean when you... Yeah, things build up in your head over exactly. time. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I wonder, did they initially create a sort of fuss for attention and it spiraled out of their control? You know, the family going through the divorce, stress plus puberty equals poltergeists. I've experienced poltergeist activity before in more than one place. So I know it's something that can happen. I've 
I've literally sat on a couch and watched an item on a table across the room from me just slide off like there was an invisible cat. So it happens. But if poltergeist activity is due to women's hormones and periods, do I believe that the suppressed rage of realizing you're about to spend 20 grand on products to contain the blood gushing from your body on a regular basis could spawn an unholy entity? Yeah, sure. I believe it. It's not the weirdest thing I've heard this week, even, really. I kind of feel betrayed that Judy Bloom never co- uh, never covered this in Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. Did you have that book in Austria? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was like every preteen's Bible. And I checked, and it was out in print when this happened. But she never gets into poltergeists. I don't know. I think I'm just open to the idea that some of this was real. I think maybe they did have a naughty geist poltering. And maybe there was something. But I think most of it was probably faked. I think it just got out of hand. Yeah, I agree. Side note, you mentioning spending 20000 on period products. Mm. This is a public service announcement from me now to all women out there who suffer from horrible, horrible cramps during the period. Do yourself a favor. If you haven't, go and try a menstruation cup. I wish I would have known about these things 20 years ago. It would have spared me a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. I know it's not for everyone, but it's worth a try. I'm practically pain-free now while there were days where I couldn't even stand up anymore. Oh, wow. So menstruation cups, two thumbs up. Sorry for digressing, but women need to know that there is an alternative now, and I'm a huge fan. I had no idea that the cup helped people with cramps. I think it's because of uh, two things. First of all, tampons can... This is going into a lot of detail, but it can dry you out and therefore can cause cramps. And I think it has something to do with the suction. Oh, maybe. Mm -hmm. This was not our something good, people. No, and this wasn't an ad for menstrual cups. So... We started with periods. We ended with periods. <laughs> Let us know what you think. Oh, I'm going to be so curious for the discussion on our page to see what people... I just yeah. really want to know what our group members have to say about this case and what you believe was real. And were you guys surprised about the Warrens not actually having any... I was like, when do the Warrens come into this? And I was like, oh, they don't. <laughs> they just... <laughs> nope. Okay. How about our something good? <laughs> My something good this week is, of course, you Aww. and this podcast we started together. <laughs> I remember that we kept saying things in the beginning like, oh, let's see if we're still doing this in one month, uh, three months, six months from now. Here we are one year later and there is no end in sight. And I think we both learned so much. And I'm so grateful for the whole experience and to have you as my partner in crime. Annie, I love you. Thank you so much. Aww. I really think we are the perfect yin and yang to do this together. And of course... Thank you all of you out there listening. Thank you for enjoying my accent. And I'm raising my glass now to another year of murder, mystery and the macabre. So cheers. Or as we say here, prost. Oh, prost. Slancha, salud. As Pink sang, raise your glass if you are wrong in all the right ways. I feel the same way. You know I do. I hop. Yeah, I can't believe how much we've accomplished this year. It's amazing to me. And I'm really looking forward to another great year and hoping this is the year we we meet. Yay! If you're listening and you want to get us an anniversary present, please take a moment and leave a written review on iTunes. Even just one word is fine. Just, hey, five stars. Thanks. That's all we need. (laughs) You don't have to take a lot of time out of your life. We know you're busy. You've got places to go. You're listening to us on the way to it. It's cool. But I have to admit, I love reading from you guys. I love hearing from you guys. It's the best. We have so many new friends. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. 
If you also want to meet new friends, join our Facebook group and tell us what you think about this case or any other cases. There are tons of albums in there. You can look at photos. There's always interesting discussions. How much do you believe? Let us know. Yeah, it's an active group. So it's called uh, Fresh Hell. If you search Fresh Hell Murder on Facebook, you'll find it. It's pretty active. So if you get too many notifications, you can always turn off the notifications for the group and then just pop in to check in the albums of cases we've covered, share your thoughts or enter contests that we have. Speaking of contests, you've still time left to enter to win a t-shirt. Just come join the Facebook group and tell us which episode of our first year was your favorite. There's a pinned post. We'll choose a winner by the end of the week. On the weekend, maybe? Sounds good. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. And thank you, Johanna, for taking this journey with me. This has been uh, quite the ride. Thank you. Please say hi to your dogs. And your cats and your wallabies and your guinea pigs. Yeah. <laughs> All of them. All of them. We love them. And uh, yeah, say hi to your kids, too. They're fine. And uh, <laughs> And if you are going through hell. Keep going. Another year. <laughs> Tschüss. Bye.